we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. I've got a special episode for you on this occasion. I've got a little interview with a guy from South Africa called Eric Mostert, and he's a psychology student, and he wrote an article in Aereo magazine that piqued my interest, and we're going to talk about that. But uh, first of all, let me introduce uh, Eric. Eric, welcome aboard the good ship, the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. Thank you, Trevor. Yeah, it's nice to meet you at last. And um, yeah, welcome to your listeners uh, from my side. And yeah, I hope, uh, I hope everyone enjoys the conversation. Yeah. So who knows where it'll end up? So uh, Eric, you wrote an article in Aereo magazine, which was titled Aping Around the Importance of Our Animal Nature. And it's looking at sort of moral codes and where religion might have fallen down and things like that. And that Right at this moment in my life, I find that fascinating. But before we get to the article, just give us some background. So you're a psychology student. Well, you've done your degree and you're now doing a master's. And tell us what, what you're up to. Yeah. So um, in, my, in my master's degree, uh, basically what I'm doing is an epidemiological study. Um, it's actually connected to the World Health Organization. Um, so epidemiological study is basically where you study disease, um, basically, and what are the risk factors for, uh, for getting that disease and also what can protect you from developing it. And um, this is a, a men's health study um, with uh, university students. And um, actually what we see is that mental disorders usually emerge um, in your late teens and early 20s. So this is actually the perfect uh, population to study regarding this. Um, so, yeah, it's a statistical study. Uh, more than a, a thousand students um, just from Stellenbosch University participated. Um, so they fill out a survey. There are all sorts of measures, um, you know, like so they ask about <clears throat> your childhood background and um, they ask you about stuff about your personality and self-concept. There are all sorts of uh, measures, psychological measures that you can use to actually tap into these constructs. And um, yeah, so what we're doing is um, basically to statistically analyze how well certain risk and uh, protective factors predict the development of, of mental health problems. So they've got uh, screening instruments um, that just look at, um, you know, whether your, your, your symptom counts uh, or the, uh, the number of symptoms that you experience actually um, mean that you've got a, a clinically significant disorder um, or not. And, um, yeah, we're basically just looking at um, developing a better knowledge uh, to see um, what contributes to mental disorder, also what protects you from it. And this can be used to develop screening instruments uh, to uh, identify populations at risk. And um, it also helps us to, um, to develop interventions to look at things that might help people um, to protect them from um, from developing adverse outcomes. So, will that be your thesis then for the masters? Is that is that how that works? Is it a thesis sort of thing? It's a thesis, yeah. Yep. So, the my main project for the year is actually to write a thesis. So, it's a it's a very academic um, 
uh, uh, leg of psychology. It's, um, it, it's, yeah, yeah. So it's, yep. I'm basically working in the, on the research side. So apart from that, there, there are many, um, dis- disciplines within psychology that you can actually pursue. Yep. So I'm in the mental health, um, area right now, but obviously, as you know, there are also clinical psychologists and, uh, counselors and so on. You apply, um, the knowledge that, uh, that is developed, um, in research, um, to actually help people. So I'm on the research side. So, so we're just starting to talk about drug legalisation in Australia. So yes. one of the topics that comes up is that with marijuana and, you know, um, psychotic problems as a result of using that. Uh, yeah, like is, yeah. one of the, is one of the questions on the questionnaire, do you use marijuana and, and is there <laughs> any, any correlation coming up like at this point? Or can, can you say anything about that topic? So we're, I'm only at the pre- preliminary, preliminary um, uh, phase of the studies. So we're just um, narrowing down a, a research question, which will bac- basically focus your attention uh, or uh, focus, yeah, focus your attention on, on, on what you s- actually seek to, to find in the study. So um, I'm, I'm only in, in, um, uh, busy with that process at the moment because we only started at the beginning of February, really. Right. Um, okay. So I don't know if your your university, uh, yes, schedule works a little, a little bit differently. Um, yeah, but um, so is that um, likely yeah, so, to be one of the one of the things you're going to ask is drug use? Then, uh, yeah, actually, actually, that that is one of the the things um, that we look at. Um, so there are different ways to to sort of approach that. I mean, the the way it was asked in the question or in the survey is uh, more to focus on whether you've got a, a drug problem or not. And um, then, uh, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of questions, like how often do you use um, drugs? And yes, marijuana is also part of the, the survey. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I could, I'm possibly going to, to look at that as well, but um, that's not my primary focus um, at the moment. Sure, fair enough. Okay, well typical of this podcast we've diverted immediately off track so we'll, I'll try and get it back on track <laughs> back back to your article so um so yeah, yeah. so let's talk about uh, your article entitled uh, aping around the importance of our animal nature and uh, work our way through some of the ideas so you start off by saying that um, that religion has had some ideas but basically whenever science categorically proved those ideas to be wrong, then religion had to abandon those ideas, you know, kicking and screaming sort of thing. So you have a good dig at religion in in it. (laughs) Yep. And, you know, of course, that's no problem for me, as you would know. Um, yeah. any, what's your background with religion, Eric? You got any biases you want to declare? You know, were you, you know... (laughs) Raised in a in a strong religious family or anything like that, or you just what's what's your religious story? Um, well, yeah, I was uh, brought, brought up in a in a Christian home, but um, it was not at all enforced on me. So I actually had a lot of freedom to think about it, and nobody expected me to to be a Christian. So uh, from just a very early age, um, you know, I, I, I read Richard Dawkins, um, uh, book, the God delusion also at a, at a, at an early age. Um, but before I read that, um, I did test out things like prayer and, um, I basically, uh, discovered that I was uh, talking to myself. So, um, whatever I want the, the godly voice to tell me is, um, 
yeah, that that godly voice um, tells me, you know. So it's it's more like it's more like I'm informing uh, the, the God's perspective more than um, it being being independent. So I've had uh, the skepticism from a very young age, and also when I read the Bible, for instance, in in Genesis, um, God creates um, light before He creates uh, the sun and the uh, the um, you know the, the the things that actually give us light on Earth. Um, so. I was I was perplexed by that. I was like, you know, that that doesn't really reflect an understanding of science. So there were all sorts of things like that. And also, I listened to uh, people like uh, Ricky Gervais and uh, and and so forth. And I heard all these um, these arguments that I really agree with. And um, and yeah, you know, it was sort of heartening to see that I'm not the only person who, who, who has these um, these problems with um, sort of working through the ideas of religion, actually making sense of it. Yep. So, um, a, lo- so a lot of that sounds like external reading, but in your psychology yeah. course, do they deal with these sorts of issues at all in a standard psychology course? No, um, maybe that's that's also uh, it's not the the reason I wrote the article, but uh, maybe that uh, did cause a little bit of frustration that uh, that led towards this. Uh, in psychology, um, I think I think uh, in the secular world in general, also in politics, um, the way we deal with individual and cultural difference is very much um, based on that idea of the separation of the church and the state. So it's basically all based on tolerance for other views whether they're right or wrong. So we basically um, are, are taught to tolerate and respect um, the truths of other cultures and other individuals and not actually to, to look at whether this is adaptive or uh, right and wrong and so on. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I, the, the problem uh, that I see is, so, um, you know, like science did change our, um, our religious beliefs over time. But I think that um, ideas, uh, scientific ideas, uh, particularly in, in this article, and, and also I think this is essential to the thing, is um, that we haven't really, the, the, the scientific truth of evolution hasn't really sunk in. We haven't really thought about the implications of these ideas for the other ideas that we have. Yeah, and, I agree. Uh, I, I'm, I, I'm finding what, myself, I've been reading a few things lately about um, like I read uh, Sapiens, which I really enjoyed, sort of big history books. There's another one um, called Origin Story by David Christian. And when you yeah. start to read these books and put things in perspective, you start to say, well, how does evolution, like what's the role of evolution in what's going on in our world? And it's it does play yeah. a big part that you're right, people don't think about at all. They sort of think, well, we're just human beings, we've got this special consciousness and and don't really think of themselves as highly developed animals, which is where yeah. you're going to get to with this article. So, um, yeah, yeah. so you say there, well, you know, science basically has um, proven much of uh, religious belief to be just totally scientifically wrong and therefore, yeah, yeah, therefore puts into question any of the moral codes that uh, religious texts might come up with. And, you know, you give the example of slavery and things like that. So uh, you then say, well, if we abandon religious moral codes, what are we left with? And, yeah, um, yeah. You have a bit of a... Yeah, uh, disc- a mental state uh, examination to, uh, to see... Uh, from a scientific perspective, what are the uh, what's the r- religious authors 
um, orientation to time, place, and person. And obviously, they were not um, aware of the age of the universe or biological evolution. They didn't know that our solar system has, is at the edge of the, the Milky Way galaxy, and that's only one of like billions of galaxies. So um, they actually did not, um, from the from the scientific uh, side of your brain, you actually have to say that these authors did not exactly know what they were, when they were, um, uh, uh, how they were, um, and so forth. So, um, so what? Yeah, what if they're if they're not orientated um, to the world uh, properly, as we would expect from a, from a scientific perspective? Yeah, what can we actually trust? Well, let me play devil's advocate. Someone like Jordan Peterson would say yeah. that the stories still have significant value, and in yeah. fact. Um, you're taking uh, by osmosis, you know, you've adopted the Christian belief even if you don't believe in the literal sort of stories, you've adopted the Christian moral code and and that there's value in it um, yes, in that sense. Yes. Uh, what, what do you say to that? Well, I, I don't um, I don't dispute uh, some of it. It's just um, I... I, I I do believe that uh, there is value to be found in um, in in the the religious texts. I mean, we've got uh, the uh, historical stories, the myths and fables, and so on of uh, the Israelites, right? Um, and and we can learn from that, just like we can learn from Greek culture or from any other culture. But um, basically, what um, what Jordan and and also Ben Shapiro are saying is that. The Judeo-Christian belief system actually forms a fundamental part of our culture. Uh, we've been uh, brought up in that culture, and it sort of um, filters the way we perceive the world. And they think that um, this uh, this uh, fundamental Judeo-Christian system that we inherit in this way is actually necessary for us to be moral creatures. And um, they actually go so far as to say that religious belief is necessary for us to be to be moral. So, for instance, if you listen to Peterson, uh, he has this. Uh, he refers to this character in one of Dostoevsky's books. Uh, I think it's in Crime and Punishment, uh, Raskolnikov, and he actually um, thinks that uh, an atheist would be something like Raskolnikov, um, who's like a really uh, a bad character, murderous character, sort of a disgusting character, and he thinks that if you totally lose your um, your religious uh, background, then you become something like that. So um, obviously so, so, there are a, yeah, he's, a, a he's, number of problems with this. Um, he's not, he's and, not the only one promoting that sort of line. So here in Australia we have yeah. someone like our former Deputy Prime Minister, John Anderson, has got a podcast. And, and there are all sorts of – we've got quite a strong religious right-wing political sort of side happening here. And they have a very strong theme that they run that we'd basically be savages raping and pillaging all the time if it wasn't for religion. And yeah, so yeah. you you but, sort of point but, out that yeah. that in I think you said this that um, that we've got that we, that we had sort of morals etc. before the Ten Commandments. We we, we had it yeah, before Christianity. So, did, did you yeah, see that? Sure. Did you read that? Did you see that article I, I sent you, which was that study of other societies which had minimal contact or no contact with Christianity, and basically they had, you know, the study showed that they'd essentially developed uh, moral codes of cooperation 
loosely around the sort of golden rule um, yeah, in all yeah. sorts of cultures all around the world that have no contact with Christianity. Had you seen that study uh, before? Um, I, I haven't seen it before, but I actually um, read it in preparation for the podcast and also the, the other things you gave me. So yeah. I think we, we should um, get into that um, into that later once, once we've um, laid the foundation. Um, yep. That is very interesting, yeah. Um, and, yeah, uh, I've got some opinions on that as well. Well, tell me now. Like, we're, we're at that point now. Cause, so you, did you dispute that or you had a problem with that study? Was it... Did it make sense to you or not? Did it? No, 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 not at all. It it it, it made a lot of sense. I completely agree with it. Um, yeah. But just, uh, just, okay, if you want to get into it now, I, I thought mm. maybe we should um, lay a lay a foundation uh, first. But um, so yeah, so you know, like they they basically say that um, I don't know, like how many um, cultures did they look at? About sixty cultures, or how many was it? Yeah, um, something. it actually looks at um, the the parallels between these cultures, like what value systems have they got um, in common, and they actually arrived at the set of cooperative behaviors that um, that are thought to be um, morally good um, cross culturally. And uh, some of these things are um, like helping the family, helping your group, uh, reciprocating, being brave, deferring to superiors dividing disputed resources and respecting prior possession of property rights. Um, so what I, what I think is this um, sort of uh, points out the, uh, the natural uh, sort of theories of morality that, that we develop in our cultures. And um, this is uh, very good and well, but um, this, uh, this, natural, this analysis of the natural uh, theories that we develop also points to some of the problems with our natural sense of morality. So, for instance, in the, in the first part, there's helping the family and helping your group, right? Mm. And that's very good. Um, but in recent times, we've actually um, started to expand um, our moral concern uh, uh, wider than the group to, to the species, actually. And I think um, this, this, comes from, this comes from the fact, maybe I should start here, um, it seems that we become more psychopath. We become more psychopathic the further we move away from home into the world of strangers and the unfamiliar. So our first priority might be um, to protect our interests as an individual. The second layer might be the family. So our interest and the family's interest are, are in, very, in many ways interchangeable. Um, that's uh, and but uh, the next layer would be the community. We tend to care more about our own community than about other communities. And then uh, on the on the level of the nation, we uh, care more about our nation than other nations, right? Yeah. Um, so as the so, as the circles expand outwards, like the stone thrown in the pond, our level of care and concern decreases, right? That's, as, that's, as people yeah. get less proximate to us, we care less exactly. about them. But in um, that's, the, that's the problem that's uh, that's uh, that's identified in. Um, you know, just helping the family and helping your group. There's, there's no indication of, of uh, being concerned about the species here. And I think, in, um, especially in recent history, we've learned why that's a problem. So, for instance, in colonialism and slavery, Nazi Germany and so on, we've uh, seen that um, having the psychopathic uh, orientation towards um, art groups actually leads to uh, enduring uh, moral problems, moral tensions, um, and it also uh, causes practical problems for um, for us. I, I mean, we, we're still 
struggling to uh, to deal with um, all the historical injustices that are built into our society today um, because of the, this history. And I think what we've learned is um, that if you want to help your family and um, help your group and so on, we actually need to be more concerned about other groups and, and nations and so forth, because we're actually dependent on them uh, to, to have our, our peace in our, in our families and peace in our societies. For instance, if um, families uh, were uh, constantly at war and they're um, constantly putting their own interests before the interests of other families, it's not going to lead to a very peaceful environment. And even the, the, the Muslims, the extremists uh, or the uh, in the Middle East, um, um, you know, people who, who support uh, uh, a, a more, I wouldn't say a primitive, but a, but, but a less developed uh, conception of, of morality where the uh, religious texts are, um, are interpreted um, quite literally. Like even the, uh, even the people in the Middle East are, are fleeing from the conflict um, that's resulted from that in their culture. So I, we can also see that um, this is sort of like a, a universal rule, right? If, you're, if you in, engage in those sort of psychopathic behaviors, it causes um, mayhem all across the board. Yeah. So in the last podcast, episode 189, I was talking a little bit about uh, groups that have uh, – a relatively high proportion of altruists in them as a group yeah. will perform better than groups that have uh, a high proportion of selfish people. And sort of yes, looking at yes. the, the, um, the uh, what's his name again, um, David Sloan Wilson and his theory about how um, it's not just people competing against each other as individuals, but it's groups that compete against each other, and therefore oh, yeah. altruistic groups become successful, breed more, are able to survive droughts and things like that. And so um, the difficulty is that um, the world is so big and that, you know, I as an Australian could look and think, well, I don't really care what happens in Tanzania. Like it has no effect on me at all. Yeah, and, that's true. And until it does have an effect on me, my care factor is very low. And and like part of the premise of your of your article is, and I'm not having a go at you, but it's this is the conundrum, is that, you know, we've got to take account of our animal nature. But yes, part of yes. our animal nature is that we've evolved to only deal, you know, until recent times, you know, we were small villages with basically 150 people or something like that. There's sort of studies to show that the human brain capes very well with recognising up to 150 people, but after that it's just too much for us and we, um, so we're sort of limited at that number. That's how we've evolved so far and, yeah, it's... You're right in that we need an altruistic world, but we also have a biological evolution that says care factor reduces as we look outwards to ever-expanding circles. So it's, you know, here's how we would get everybody. The question is how would we get everybody to work together as a species? And yeah. the, the answer would be if we had a common enemy. Eric, here's my theory. <laughs> if so aliens like to come in and then reunite against the aliens. Well, it's a I stupid like thought experiment. But if you wanted to unite yeah. all of the Homo sapiens, the easiest yeah. way to do it, the most instant way would be to provide a common threat. 
some sort of yeah. alien force that said, we're going to attack you. Suddenly, there would be an enormous amount of cooperation, wouldn't there? So Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, what, but what I, what, the argument that I make in the, in the article, um, I start with this in the introduction, is that I think there are various, way, various reasons why um, people uh, sort of resist integrating, sort of, for instance, ideas of uh, biological evolution with the other ideas that they have. Um, this, there are reasons why they don't integrate these, these ideas. And um, one of the reasons is because it takes a lot of effort and time to do that. Um, it's quite difficult, actually. And uh, mm. a lot of people just don't have the time or the motivation to do it. And um, I think that if we can show people um, why it's important to think to do this, um, then, then they might be more motivated to, to do it. And like I said, um, if you can actually see that um, treating other groups and um, you know, sort of expanding your, uh, at least just, just cognitively, even if you, if you don't feel it immediately, um, to, to expand our concern to, to other groups and, and, and to basically base our morality perhaps on the well-being of the species and instead of just the well-being of the group, um, we might actually realize that this is in our own self-interest uh, because um, this, the moment that you do something bad against another group, they want to get you back. So um, if your goal, for instance, is um, to have a peaceful world, um, doing that actually works against your goal of having a peaceful world. Um, so if we can start uh, thinking more rationally about this, we might actually be motivated by self-interest to, um, to be able to behave somewhat differently um, towards other groups. I agree with you. It's one of those things where if you think about it and practice thinking about it, it becomes more natural, I guess. But um, mm. we, we don't, and as I mentioned in the last podcast, there's this thing where as nations we see it as quite acceptable to be very selfish in our national yes. interest against other groups yes. and we just say, stuff you. And, and our leaders can legitimately say, stuff these other countries, we're getting the best possible deal for ourselves and we just don't care. And it's a sort of a... Exactly. It's a moral code that we wouldn't allow at an individual level, but as a national level, we do it. And yeah, it's getting uh, getting a sort of a worldly view of things is just hard to imagine. So, yes, and uh, I, I think one of the you know one of the problems that I've actually identified is it's also got to do with um, the secular world uh, being based on <clears throat> the separation of uh, church and state. Um, so um, how often do you hear about our animal nature in, uh, in the mainstream media or um, just in general conversations with, with other people? Even though this is the most fundamental fact uh, about who we are, how often do we actually talk about this? Do we make it part of our culture? I think the answer is no. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, and, and uh, part of the reason I think is because um, is scientific uh, worldview is uh, pretty much irreconcilable with most religious, um, you know, uh, belief systems, and also with, uh, I would argue, a lot or, or most of the cultural systems. So, can you actually um, imagine a, a politician sort of uh, talking in a scientific way and a rational way, and um, and getting the support of the the people in a secular society if um, basically this belief system that they're promoting um, conflicts with their, their, voters, um, their voters' feelings. Um, we've also seen that your chances of um, being an atheist and, and being elected in America 
um, are very slim. So um, I think, uh, yeah, I think it's it's sort of like a, a, a utilitarian decision that they that they make. But I don't think it's in our interest to um, to exclude this from the conversation. Yeah, that's one of my biggest um, issues with religion is it causes division. Uh, when we've already got enough things dividing us, that we it's just such an unnecessary division that it creates. And here in Australia, we have um, private religious schools. You know, we separate Jewish kids into Jewish schools and Muslim kids into Muslim schools and Anglicans into Anglican schools and Catholics into Catholic schools. And then we wonder yeah. why people don't get on when they become adults, you know. And it just... <laughs> Just separating kids unnecessarily and creating a division like you would have been aware of uh, these psychology studies where they, you know, put people in a room and they give one group, you know, a red badge and another group a blue badge and and without any prompting, uh, the people just gather together in their reds and blues and suddenly start having pro-group and anti-group feelings Oh, over yes, a yeah. randomly attributed, you know, coloured badge that they were given as they walked in the door. Like, yeah. it's, again, one of those evolutionarily inherited traits that we have about yeah. forming groups and yeah. and and coalescing around a group in, ready for attack from another group. It's, yeah, it's... Yeah. We're identifying uh, a lot of the problems here, Eric. It's hard to come to the solutions, but we're at least identifying the problems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like with with that as as well. Um, I think, uh, for instance, like also the you know the social justice movement. Um, are we trying to? They, these are real problems that they're um, that they're addressing, and um, but the way they address it is by trying to by reinforcing our sense of difference from other people, right? So basically, we just um, keep on advocating for uh, the interest of our own group, whether we're right or wrong, as we've always done, because it's just reinforcing this group behavior. Um, but what we lack is um, basically this feeling of commonality, this, uh, this feeling of species that we're, um, you know, because, because our identity hasn't shifted that way. Um, mm. So I think I think that's the problem. If you want actually want to solve these problems, we need to um, change the foundation of the conversation, and um, actually uh, actually put put a little bit more emphasis on on our commonality as well. At the same time that we're um, that we're talking about uh, these cultural differences, you know, calling someone a Christian, Jew, like just reinforcing uh, that sense of difference between rich and poor and all the rest. These are real differences, but. We, we can't base the conversation on that because then everyone just keeps on advocating for their group whether they're right or wrong. Um, what is the other the other thing that I that I wanted to say? Um, so yeah, we, we're also um, we're also we're also uh, we're also so this group behavior is um, part of the the natural way we um, we react as a species, but, but I think that's also. Um, part of the reason why it's important to actually recognize the importance of our animal nature, because when we become self-conscious in this way, when we've actually really worked uh, through these ideas, what we realize is that um, where you were born, your culture, your personality, um, and everything else um, is a description of, of what we are as, as homo sapiens. What basically happens is we experience the world as um, social animals, um, we develop our personalities and identities in relation to other people. And the danger here is um, 
we are very uh, we tend to uh, see our own experience and the social world as self-sufficient, right? So this actually leads us to a solipsistic belief system. So solipsism is the theory where um, you believe that only the self exists or can be proved to exist. So actually, we actually begin to think that our thoughts and our feelings are, are actually reality, and reality is our thoughts and our feelings. So what we're doing here is we're taking a step back and we're saying that where you were born, your family, um, your culture, your experience and all the rest, all of that is really just a description of who you are as a homo sapiens. It creates a sense of self-consciousness. And when you become self-conscious as an ape, you can actually look at these, um, you know, the psycho psychopathy spectrum that we talked about. And you can begin to see how that, um, that might have worked in the past in, in a certain way when, when we were all like warring tribes, right? Um, yeah. I mean, like, you, then you, you would have had to convince the other tribe uh, to think differently. Otherwise, you would just have to go on with your group behavior in, just in order to preserve your group. Um, yeah. But I, I think that uh, maybe it's also a failure of the education system. Uh, you know, things like meditation and so on. Um, also, if you can integrate that with, uh, with uh, an appreciation of our animal nature, you can actually look at these things that we experience and actually understand why, um, why those, uh, those behaviors actually work against achieving our, the moral goals that we, this kind of moral goals that we have in common. Yeah, I think emphasizing our sort of our animal nature, as you say, and that we're just a bag of complicated cells to some extent, people will go and you say, well, you know, you've been designed to um, think of in-group, out-group. So be yeah. aware of that when you are you know, working your way through life and maybe in yeah. a situation you'll, it'll cause you to stop for a moment and go, oh, shit, yeah, I am actually falling into, the, into that trap. Um, yeah. You know, a sort of an, if you think about it often enough, you train yourself to look for that sort of thing, I guess, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah. like, it, it's as simple as that. It's as simple as, um, as interpreting your, uh, your feelings and emotions and your thoughts um, in context of being a great ape, right? That, that's really as simple as it is. Yep, yep. My one problem with the ape analogy is, though, that we have developed mental capacities that are quite different to the apes. So, yeah, yeah. you know, we've, we've got these parts of our brain that, um, uh, you know, that have, have taken us away from the psychopathic behaviour that apes actually have and make us... Who we are as humans, and it's actually Nazi Germany, colonialism, slavery. Well, yeah, I, we have I, a good side and a bad side, a dark side and a and a good side. We're very much yeah, like it's not perfect. No, yeah. it's not perfect. But chimpanzees are the same. They also have yeah. uh, cooperative behavior, sense of community, and so on. Yes. And then they also go to war and they do all sorts of um, very distasteful things. Um, so, yeah, yes. Yeah, but we've at least got that capacity in our brains, which, which, you know, apes don't have. So, I'll just read. I was I got this from uh, a guy, David Gillespie, wrote a book called Taming Toxic People, and he was looking at uh, psychopaths and um, and dealing with psychopaths in the work environment. And actually, psychopaths are becoming a real topic. I think people are recognizing yeah. Yeah. psychopathic behavior as a real topic. And not only at an individual level, because individually, you know, psychopaths can thrive in our world at the moment. You know, you can live oh, yeah. self-sufficiently and 
get by as a psychopath, whereas in olden days in a village, like the Eskimos would have pushed you off the ice at some stage and <laughs> and be done with you sort of thing. Yeah. Whereas you can survive in our modern world as a psychopath. Um, so potentially we've got more of them than ever. I don't know. But not only at, at an individual level, but also um, looking at companies, corporations, how they are basically prescribed to act in a psychopathic manner in that your goal is to make money and forget about anything else. And people are starting to look at the setup of the world and organisations and going, well, no wonder corporations are screwing us over because we've set them up to be psychopaths and we need to change that. But anyway, in... In his book, um, this one from David Gillespie, he's talking about sort of physical parts of the the brain and um, he was saying that um, as humans we have a much higher spindle neural count and this is what makes us human. When people suffer frontotemporal dementia, FTD, they suffer progressive destruction of the spindle neurons and people lose the ability to transmit information from the amygdala to the uh, prefrontal cortex. And basically what happens then is that almost a complete loss of empathy and social awareness and social self-control. These people no longer feel compassion, regret or shame. They can Mm -hmm. tell right from wrong but have a a slow and insidious loss of moral rationality. So more than half of FTD patients become involved in criminal activity. They become Mm -hmm. psychopaths. So it's just interesting to sort of think about that as one of the things that makes us human is just these neurons in our brain and if through illness or injury they're shut down, we revert to what we might have been 200,000 years ago, which was was potentially a bunch of psychopaths. So... Um, yeah, I, I actually um, actually looked at uh, that argument. Um, yep. You sent it to me, and yep. um, um, yeah, so I don't um, I don't agree. Um, there's a, a piece here where um, basically I think this is what he argues. Um, so basically, uh, what's embedded in that argument is like we developed these spindle neurons about a hundred thousand years ago, right? And basically, the assumption is that if you uh, remove those spindle neurons, then we uh, become psychopaths, okay? But um, yeah. I'm not talking as an expert of the brain here. Um, I'm a psychologist or a psychology student, um, and we do some brain stuff. Um, but, you know, like mm. there's, a, uh, there's actually a specific leg of psychology that deals with this called neuropsychology. And, mm. um, yeah, so I've, I've, had, I've, had, I've um, had modules in that. Um, but the uh, spindle neurons um, are they're, um, they're actually quite common. So they're common to big brain species, uh, species that have developed in uh, complex intelligence. Uh, spindle neurons are actually found in all the great apes. Um, they're also found in some species of dolphins. They're found in whales, uh, some species of whales. They're found in uh, macaque monkeys and in elephants and so forth. And what the yeah. um, so these uh, this is associated not only with intelligence but also with the um, development of complex social behaviors, and um, yeah. the function of the spindle neurons is actually to um, to uh, uh, to to enable faster communication between different regions of the brain, right? Yeah. And yeah. Um, it's, it's not the spindle neurons, not the connection between the different regions of the brain. 
that um, that actually allow us to to be empathic. It's the um, the regions of the brain themselves that allow us to be um, to be empathic. So in uh, frontotemporal dementia, the uh, parts of the brain that are uh, mostly affected is the frontotemporal um, uh, cortex. Um, is basically the um, the part right at the front of your brain. It's just behind your eyes and your uh, and your forehead, right? Yep. Um, and the other part, parts that are affected is the temporal lobes. That's at the side of your brain. So um, basically, there, there are a couple of things. Um, it's a bit more complicated than this, but there are a couple of things that you need to uh, to have empathy. And the the frontal lobe and the temporal lobes um, actually play a very um, big part in supporting our ability to be empathic. So a couple of things that are necessary to have empathy. So, for instance, executive function that's uh, given by the uh, frontal lobe. Um, this uh, gives us uh, a sense of self-awareness, allows us to introspect. Uh, it allows abstract reasoning. Um, it's involved in social regulation um, and, and all the rest. Um, so another thing that you need to be empathic is you need to be able to read the emotions in uh, the faces of others. So, for instance, mm. you need to be able to recognize when someone is in pain or when someone is in distress. And uh, this is made possible by the temporal lobes. Um, and, yes. and I think to an extent also the frontal lobes. And another thing that you need is a theory of mind in order to interpret a, uh, a moral situation. So you need to be able to intuit the uh, perspectives and the intentions of other people. And um, what happens in uh, frontal tem- uh, temporal uh, dementia is that these uh, structures that or these brain regions that support empathy actually break down. So the frontal and, and the parts of the side of your brain. So I don't think it's it's not the spindle neurons that really make us human. It's actually these uh, branch structures. And what we find is when we look at other primates, they actually have these structures in common with us. So our our uh, brains are are very much uh, more developed in in these areas. Um, so as you as you uh, would know, the the spindle neuron count, for instance, in the in the um, prefrontal cortex and so on, is a lot higher in um, in humans than in the other apes and. There are all sorts of differences uh, in terms of reorganization and, and so forth. But um, our, the structures are, are very similar. And um, you also see empathic uh, behaviors and cooperative behaviors among the other great apes because this is really what separates us as social animals from just uh, purely individual animals. So if you can imagine a snake, the snake is just purely self-interested. Um, it, it doesn't. It doesn't form alliances or um, or work together with others, right? But uh, yep. the great apes actually um, generally, in ge- in general, do have cooperative behaviors, and they also um, yes. identify uh, non-cooperative behaviors. So, for instance, um, chimpanzees apparently, um, uh, when when a young uh, chimpanzee is attacked by an aggressor. The other chimpanzees actually react to this, and they 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 come to the protection of the younger one, which um, nice. actually shows that they have some sort of empathy, some sort of empathic connection to the younger one. They can see the younger one is in distress, and they actually feel morally outraged um, because of that. And there are all sorts of things. I think it's the bonobos. Um, they, they actually so so they, there's also I think uh, in this uh, one source I read there. Um, conflicts uh, developed between uh, developed between uh, males and females, and the females would actually form an alliance to oppose the um, transgressing uh, uh, male group. So, yep. 
it's yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff yeah. like that. It, it's sort of a, a general thing about social animals. So I think to make the argument that yeah. we were psychopathic um, before 200,000 years ago would actually imply that we weren't social animals then. And we definitely were. We were part of the hominids. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess a psychopathic human 200,000 years ago mightn't have been too different from a chimpanzee today, though. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, call, them, I wouldn't call them psychopathic. Eh? I, I don't know right. if, you, uh, if, you, right. if you've seen uh, videos so, of, of chimpanzees so. that actually show a lot so. of sensitivity. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, they, yeah. uh, for instance, they, they, there are videos where um, a guy does, uh, uh, does a magic trick. He shows the magic trick to the, yeah. I think it was a chimpanzee, it might have been a gorilla. I think it was a chimpanzee. And he just bursts out laughing. He like falls on his back laughing. Yes. He actually understands the yes. magic trick. It was a thing where yeah. you know, like there are two cops and there's a ball, and then they do yeah. you know like all these um, complicated movements, and then all of a sudden the ball yes. is gone. You know. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Eric, and, even and, even psychopaths I, laugh, but but yeah, hey, just to push back, just to push back yeah. a little bit on what you said. Like I'm no brain expert either, but just to give credit to David Gillespie's theory. Um, I'll put an image. I'll put this image on the show notes. But it basically, I don't know if you can see it. But just in terms of the actual, can you lift a little diff- bit. Um, I, yeah, I can't see. see. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, can you see that? Uh, no. It's, uh, okay, it's just a graph, a table, yeah. basically showing the difference in the spindle neural count, which. For yeah. humans is like uh, let me see two hundred thousand, and uh-huh. for a a chimpanzee it seems like it's in the hundred. Well, maybe in the hundreds or maybe a thousand. Yeah. It's hard to tell on the scale. So yeah, there's a bit there's a big difference in um, uh, the actual numbers. So and and the. Now, I don't know how to pronounce it. A-M-Y-G-D-A-L-A, the amygdala gland. Have you, the amygdala. Are you familiar? Yeah. Amygdala, right. Yeah. Um, um, quick story on that. Have you seen a movie recently with a guy who um, climbs El Capitan in Yosemite? No, Have you no. seen that movie? So no. if you're into rock climbing, it's really interesting. So this guy right. is... Um, it's a documentary, true story, happened just a year or two ago about this guy who um, climbs El Capitan, which is this sheer granite rock face in Yosemite National Park in California. And yeah. most people um, doing it in teams with ropes, you know, it takes them two or three days. They've got to camp overnight and eventually get up there. And this guy did it uh, without ropes, freestyle, in four okay. hours. So... <laughs> It's an amazing, amazing achievement. Yeah. And um, but he's clearly a guy on the spectrum of some sort of a Spurgis type thing. And it, it's uh, really interesting how it talks about his relationship with his girlfriend. And he's clearly on the spectrum. And at one point, they they take him and put him in an MRI machine and show him images. And they said, uh, "Funny thing is, your uh, how do you spell it? Amid, amidal? How do you pronounce it? Amid." I'm, I'm pretty sure it's, Amig- it's Amig- Amigdala. Yeah. The amygdala uh, yeah. uh, is nowhere near as active as it is for other people, <laughs> is what yeah. I was saying. When, when, yeah. uh, and it made sense because he was on the spectrum. So, anyway, that can be for a future discussion about how much physically, mentally, you know, our brains are different to animals and what that means, I guess. But uh, it's all part of the equation in trying to work out what we are. Um, 
and what we should do. Because what's that argument of Hume that just because is doesn't mean ought? How, what's what's the, how's that one go? Is it Hume who said that? that? That's actually, that's actually very similar to uh, to the argument that Jordan Peterson makes that there's this uh, Judeo-Christian uh, belief system that sort of underpins uh, Western society, and we are brought up in that. Um, so uh, basically. Um, the argument is that you can't um, derive an ought from an is. To explain this, um, the is is basically how the world works. So that's the facts of how the world is. That's, that's just the facts, right? Um, the fact that we normally don't rape and we normally don't kill. So, for example, no, at the moral I level. Think, I, yep. I think it's just, you know, the facts in general. Um, you know, yep. if you just look at the, the, yeah, the facts of how the world is and, and just facts in general, yep. So yeah, you so can't, um, you can't. If, according to him, you can't derive a way about how the world ought to be um, from a description of how the world is. So yeah, that's that yeah. is accurate. Um, yeah, and, because uh, he would say that um, in, a, in a cannibal. Just to give an example for people, so in a cannibal society, they would say that well, we eat people. That's what we do, and so yeah. that's what we ought to do, whereas other societies would say, well, that's abhorrent, you shouldn't be doing that. So just yeah. because that's what you do doesn't mean that's what you ought to do, is what yeah, you're saying. So, so. Yeah, yeah. So the, the argument that I make here is um, that if you were uh, born in a society of, um, of cannibals, right, um, yeah, so y- you will grow up to think that it's right to cannibalize the opposite tribe. Um, you might even be shamed if you feel a moral instinct not to do it. Uh, people will say you're uh, you're a weakling or whatever. They will sort of try to shame you. Um, so basically, it's the same argument that uh, Jordan makes uh, before, where he says that we basically interpret the facts through the lens of our culture in which we've been taught. And uh, it, the same year, he um, he thinks that we need to uh, to uh, view the facts uh, through the lens of the uh, Judeo-Christian tradition, in order to be able to look at the way things are and the facts, right, um, and in order to derive a picture of how the world ought to be from that, right. Mm, uh, so yeah. the argument that I'm making here is that instead of doing that, we should rather interpret the facts uh, from the foundation of being animals, right, from the foundation of being apes. And what we um, see then is uh, we've got okay. So the, the, if you I, I prefer to think of um, language as a tool that we use to describe reality. And so we should focus on reality rather than, than on the words that we use to describe it. Okay? And if you look at what it um, literally means to be an animal, it means that you're uh, conscious or aware inside the brain and mind and also, of course, the body of a, of a great ape. So uh, what are the, some of the things that we're aware of? Okay, So um, in this conscious space of conscious awareness, we... Uh, receive information from the outside world uh, through our senses, so for instance, our sense of sight, our sense of touch, our sense of smell, and so forth. And we also feel uh, and have emotions towards uh, these things that we perceive in the world. And actually, if we look at the um, emotions and the feelings that we have as apes, there are actually certain goals in, embedded in uh, in these emotions and feelings that we have. So, for instance, uh, the, in the in the case of the feeling of fear, the goal that's embedded in that is to engage or to avoid a threat. And if you feel the um, emotion of attraction, the goal is uh, to approach or to acquire that thing that you desire, right? So if you look at it democ- on a democratic level, so this is not, not all, all people would agree with this. We can uh, think about psychopaths and uh, narcissists and so on. 
they're, they're, they are there, but they're actually, uh, they're not uh, the democratic majority. They're uh, a relatively small percentage of people. Uh, if you look at some of the, the goals that we're um, sort of generally attracted to, some of these goals are things like um, global peace, um, uh, harmony and love and prosperity. And some of the things that we are actually um, that we actually want to move away from, that the things that we fear, the things that we don't like, uh, the, are the opposite ideals of these, um, or the uh, dystopian side of this. So um, that would include uh, things like hatred and violence and war and famine, right? So I think that the, the proper way to um, actually interpret our historical stories and also the facts more generally is to see how well our interpretations um, work as strategies to achieve our moral goals. And, um, yeah, in, in that sense, I, I have some things in common with, uh, with Sam Harris, uh, who believes that uh, we, we might get to that, but uh, with Sam Harris, who basically thinks that uh, we can um, test our strategies uh, for achieving our moral goals scientifically. We can see which of them actually work. We can look historically at, for instance, you know, we've tried the experiment of communism over and over again, and we can analyze why it doesn't work. For instance, in this case, you put all the power in the in the states. That's what you think um, represents the the interest of the masses. But actually, that leads to tyranny, and it's just a small minority of people um, who psychopathically just serve their own interest and uh, yeah, neglect the, the interest of, of the populace they they're supposed to serve. So Sam Harris has a has a sort of a theory of uh, maximizing well being for. The most number of people, basically, yes, and he yes, says yeah. that there are certain things that we can all agree on as being well-being, and at the most basic level, um, sort of life as opposed to death is, right. is one. I think. I think I remember uh, a discussion where Jordan Peterson really stopped him there and said, "Well, not necessarily. Death, you know, life's a terrible thing. Like, I mean, you know, really yeah. bring people into this world. You know, if you really thought about it, you wouldn't do it, sort of thing, because it's just yeah. a terrible thing to do to somebody." Did, did you ever hear that discussion? Uh, yeah, I actually listened to it. I, I know there was mm. also a lot of um, that was also when they talked about um, you know, like sort of like what is true and things like that. I think yeah. uh, so that the Vancouver um, uh, um, uh, debates or uh, discussion, yeah, um, it, it got yes. bogged down. Yeah, yeah. I, I really, I quite liked. I'm, I'm with you. I quite like Sam Harris. I'm not a hundred percent convinced on this one of maximising well-being for essentially the most number of people. Is uh, would I be right in quoting that? Like, um, if, if there was a decision to be made, and you know, five billion people are going to be, you know much happier and uh, and otherwise the status quo like he would go for it he's, he's sort of talks in just numbers of maximum wellness for the most number of people true yeah. um yeah. No, like, like um mm-hmm. what what not necessarily what what um what i what i respect uh and what i admire in the way he looks at it is he basically thinks that uh, morally good behaviors are behaviors that help us to, or that promote the goal of human prosperity, and morally bad behaviors are basically behaviors that impede um, our efforts to achieve this goal. And um, yes. in, in that sense, it's about um, uh, maximizing uh, well-being. Um, and yeah, this this has a lot in common with um, the conception of morality, the if-ought conception that I developed, 
just just uh, basically a, uh, a short way of of um, saying that we have these certain moral goals, and um, there are better and worse ways to achieve these goals. And like Sam Harris, I think that we can actually test um, our strategies in the world to see uh, which of them work best. And then when it comes to um, to this sort of uh, so, so you know the, the the question that I think we we've already touched on before is why should you care uh, about the well-being of the species? Why not only care about the well-being of your group? And um, yeah. and, and 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 I think we've touched on that um, with the um, you know the examples of slavery and Nazi Germany and so forth. It's uh, sort of these these lessons that we've learned more recently in history. Um, what the consequences of those kind of behaviors are. Um, I mean, it, it creates social discord long, uh, you know, far along the line, um, even even up to now. Um, yeah. So we can we can really see that behaviors like these are morally bad because they actually lead away from uh, from the moral goals, the goals that are Im- embedded in the um, in the uh, our foundational moral feelings. Um, so I think it's it's much better to follow um, follow a. A, a, reason, a, re, a, a train of thought that's based on reason rather than um, rather than anything else in this regard. Yep. Um, I don't want to get deep into it, but I'll just ask. I mean, I'm afraid to ask the question, but uh, the concept of free will, got any thoughts on that? <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's quite difficult to say. Um, I think, uh, okay, so obviously we... Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> Um, I, I'm afraid to uh, like. I we can do this in another. We can do this in another episode in depth, Eric. But have you? No, I've, got, just, I've, got a, I've got an opinion okay. on this. Um, so, give me your elevator. Give me your elevator pitch on on free will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, just to just to uh, to take a stab at it. Um, so uh, I touched on before that um, we we're consciously aware, um, you know, in, in, in our in, in the mind of uh, the creature that we inhabit. And, um, you know, a lot of the, the things are, um, actually happen uh, subconsciously. So our thoughts are uh, formulated uh, outside of our awareness. Uh, our feelings and, and emotions, they come from somewhere else. They, they're actually, they actually come from the subcortical structures uh, of the brain. So, for instance, the, the limbic system. The uh, limbic system actually integrates um, sensory information, especially the amygdala, um, integrates, uh, and it's also involved in memory, it integrates um, your perceptual experiences with uh, your feelings and emotions, right? And this, uh, this information, actually the spindle neurons are involved in this. Um, there's uh, the ACC, the uh, anterior cingulate cortex. Uh, there's also a lot of spindle neurons in there and also in the prefrontal um, cortex or in the frontal lobe. And it, um, what basically happens is this uh, limbic system, uh, this e- emotional uh, part of the brain, this emotional sensor of the brain, actually communicates with uh, the frontal lobe. And the, front, the, the role of the frontal lobe is actually, actually the executive function. Uh, the goal of the frontal lobe is actually to orchestrate our thoughts and actions towards achieving our internal goals that are provided by these deeper structures that give us emotion and motivation, Right. Yes. So, yep. um, so I just, uh, yeah, that's sort of thought, a thought that came to mind. Um, you know, um, this is actually uh, sort of like the the biological a, a biological uh, bi- biological argument that sort of supports this idea of there being goals embedded in your in your emotions. Your frontal brain can actually 
look at all these emotions that you experience. Um, you know, you can introspect and you have a sense of self-awareness. You can actually analyze what these um, feelings are. You can prioritize them. You can look at what the goals in those um, feelings are. And it's really a frontal brain argument to, to say that we should use reason to interpret our, um, our moral goals rationally and to, um, and to develop, uh, you know, reasonable strategies um, to, to help us achieve these goals in our behavior. Um, so sorry, what, what, did I go off? So do we, have, do we have free will so to make, will. When, when we're making decisions, are we really yes. exercising free will or are we just the yeah. victims of predetermined uh, neural firings and, and chemical reactions and other things in our in our so, head that we're not really controlling like we think we might be. So, so obviously, there, there have also been studies where um, they see that um, basically your, your emotions and uh, lots of your cognitive processes happen subconsciously. So you sort of, um, only after these calculations have been made, you actually become aware of them. And um, in, in that sense, you might not have uh, that much free will because um, these things are sort of fed to you by deeper systems of your brain and it only becomes conscious afterwards. But I think we do have free will in the sense that um, uh, our, uh, our uh, conscious, consciousness or that executive function, that's, or the executive function that's, um, that's, that, that's a part of your forebrain actually allows you to and not react um, on, on everything that your brain feeds you. You can actually sort of flexibly um, look at all your options and, and choose one. Um, I, they, I wouldn't but, necessarily but that, say that... That, that ability to choose, that is that... Is that um, do, but it, but that, it that ability to choose, do we really have it? It gives you some, some sense of agency about the information that you're fed, but I think um, you're always going to have your your biases and the things that you prefer even before you made the decision. Um, so it's very hard for me to say whether we are free will or not, but we certainly act like we do. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, that was a question without notice. That'll be for another time. So I, uh, I'm going to wrap it up on the discussion on your article, Eric, but I just wanted to ask, um, you know, you're born and bred in South Africa? Uh, yeah, born and bred. And you're going to stay there? Like, is that like I live in Brisbane, Australia, and yeah. there's a lot of South Africans here. Like, oh, really? I sometimes, yeah, I play squash, and South Africans, you know, and New Zealanders love playing squash. Uh, oh, yeah. So I come across a lot of them. And sometimes I wonder, can there be anybody left in South Africa? Because it just seems everybody leaves. Like, does it feel that way that it so does. many people leave? It does, yeah, yeah. I'm actually aware that there are a lot of people in Australia, and um, that's like I I really like Australia. I think it's a great place. Um, I'm also I'm also planning to to go overseas uh, some point soon and uh, to find work overseas. And uh, yeah, so yeah, but I but have- there's definitely there's definitely a sense that um, that people are leaving. You know, when you talk to people, um, you know, I think the uh, the older generation are. They sort of feel like um, there's, they're, they're less inclined to go overseas, but the younger generation are really motivated. So, uh, yeah, lots of my friends have left. Um, uh, I've got friends in Taiwan and uh, in uh, Vietnam and in Thailand and all sorts of places. So, um, yeah, there's definitely uh, a move to, a move to um, or a, a trend to, to move out. 
Um, and yeah. and a, like a psychology degree, is that a good one to get a job with? Like, is there lots of work out there for psychologists? Is it? Well, good? Um, yeah. Well, you can work at a university, but also with the uh, statistical uh, side uh, that I'm focusing on now, um, it's basically this. As I understand, it's it's very much the same uh, techniques or um, skills that you would use in any social science. And uh, it helps you to do a lot of things. Like um, our professor actually mentioned to us uh, this one opportunity that uh, one of his students got. And it was to help um, uh, Trueworths develop um, sort of... uh, a way to profile um, customers to um, sort of um, to try and determine um, with uh, just a you know limited number of variables um, how much money you can uh, you can or how much you can sell them on credit. Um, so yeah, there's all sorts of things like that that you can do. You can work in the private sector as well. Um, but yeah, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm also I'm very interested in in journalism. I've got a I've also got a I've got a new article coming out this week um, as well, and I'm really enjoying that. Okay, and that's the other thing I wanted to ask was um, was like I quite like Aereo magazine, and uh, that was your first article. Was it? Yeah. Is it easy? You just you send it in and and hope they run with it. Like, is it <laughs> as simple as sending an email off, or what was involved in publishing your article? Uh, yeah, so you obviously need to, need to make sure that, um, you've got, uh, you've done a good job, uh, you've got a, an article that they, they're actually going to, to want because they do pay for the article. So they sort of buy it from oh, you. Right. So you have, oh, to, okay. so you have to sort of pitch it. So, um, you know, um, yeah, um, so, but it, it is, uh, basically as, as simple as, um, as approaching an editor and, uh, yeah, Giving them your piece and 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 you see what they they think about it and if they think it's suitable to their magazine and they they like it um, then they're they're likely to publish it yeah ah so are you able to say what the topic is of the next article or is it hush hush at the moment um I, I don't know I, I wouldn't say it's it's hush hush um I I'll, I'll tell you um I don't I don't just, I don't just think generally a problem with that yeah maybe I won't go through the whole um, argument but. It's about, um, okay, so I, I don't know if you're aware, but um, soon after Trump was elected, there was uh, this concerted uh, effort by mental health experts to prove that Trump is mentally ill and that he should be impeached on that basis. And uh, right. there's actually uh, some uh, political uh, mechanizations uh, working in tandem with this. And uh, it's the Democrats. Uh, it's it, yeah. It's basically it's being prepared by the Democrats. So, um, yeah, it's I. Um, I basically just ask uh, the question uh, whether we can trust uh, the the diagnosis of these mental health professionals or um, what the diagnosis alternative alternatively actually means. So I okay, think that sounds a good one. Yeah, yeah. So from my perspective, it's it's more uh, it, it's 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 more like it's more uh, 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 they're they're using the the DSM or uh, you know the guideline uh, to diagnosing mental disorders in a in a political way rather than in a strictly professional way in in this case. Right. Okay. Yeah. Not surprising given the circumstances. So yeah. Okay, Eric. Well. Um, 
no doubt we're going to talk again in future. Um, awesome. We we need on our we need on our podcast a, a South African correspondent. If things <laughs> just come up newsworthy wise in South <laughs> Africa, <laughs> then can we cook? Can we call on you as our, as our man in Cape Town to oh, yeah. keep us up to date on the goings on in South Africa and Africa generally? Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I, I'd really enjoy Excellent. that. Yeah, thanks. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Well. Uh, uh, Eric, I'm going to sign off on this, but don't hang up. So, uh, dear listener, I hope you've enjoyed uh, my conversation with Eric. It's a bit of an unusual one, but the topic is important. Like, if we're going to abandon religion, where are we going to get this moral code from? And I think it's uh, an important topic. So, thanks, Eric, for uh, being part of the podcast, and we'll talk to you again another time. And thank you, dear listener, for, for tuning in. Okay, great. So, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think is a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation, so you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.